Colossians chapter 1. We arrived in Colossians through sickness and disease. Chris got sick. I had been sick. Chris got sick, so people took over for me and I took over for Chris. And I just decided, okay, well, I'll do a little favorite verse in Colossians, which was all I had planned to do, and ended up uh, with Chris being sick longer than we expected. And so we got into Colossians chapter 1, and there's some things about this chapter, particularly the paragraph that we're on, chapter 1, 18 through 20, that we wanted to dwell on for a few weeks, um, about the church. What is the church? Because there's a lot of folks who are new, and one of the great differences in our body is not the talking about body life, but the actually doing of body life. I've been to many a church who would... Mike? Mike not on? Oh, yeah. I've been to many a church where uh, there's a lot of talk about body life. It's a popular doctrine. Um, we live in an age, by the way, if you want to be an acceptable preacher, all you got to do is shell out the money for the big, thick books. <clears throat> and you can get yourself all uh, up with the latest uh, discussions of things. And um, so there's been a lot of talk about body life. But in my lifetime, I haven't seen a lot of implementation of body life. I'm not sure folks really know what it means. So when people come to our church, they, they see body life and they like it. And they say, yeah, I'm going to be part of this body. And get involved in the body life, and they realize, oh, what I see versus how you actually accomplish it are two different things. Because they have a a perspective on body life, but if you haven't really had to do it, it's kind of like being married. Before you get married, how many of you think, man, I'm going to get married, it's going to be great. All the guys think about the great things of marriage from a guy's point of view, and all the ladies think about the great things of marriage from a lady's point of view, and then what happens? You get married, <clears throat> and everybody goes, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. This is hard. <laughs> and uh, that's what it is to have real body life in a church, a sustained uh, body life. It's, it's not as easy as one may describe it from the outside. So that's why we'll be continuing there. Uh-oh. More. More technical stuff. Okay, now we got it working. All right, so we've been dealing with Colossians. Remember, Colossians is in uh, Asia Minor of that day, modern-day Turkey. And Colossians is next to Laodicea, which is one of those seven churches in the book of Revelation. If you were to start with Ephesus on this map and go in sort of a clockwise direction, that gives you... Uh, how the, uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the churches that Jesus addresses, he addresses them in that order. And uh, so Colossae next to Laodicea. Laodicea again was in the Lycus River Valley, a very mountainous area. They were kind of in between some mountains and they had three sister villages, which ended up having three sister churches, Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. And Paul sent letters, three letters to that group of churches. And so they, uh, they got a lot of attention from the Lord. And uh, we, we appreciate that letters were written to them that we today profit from greatly. 
Colossae was uh, sort of at the beginning and slash end of a trade route between the east and west, between the Mediterranean and, and the east and China, India, those kind of places. And so because Colossae was a, a small town on a big trade route, they had lots of ideas passing through. Many travelers would come through and they would talk about their personal beliefs and their opinions. Some would probably be more quiet, some would be more bombastic, but the Colossians were totally being exposed all the time to all of the latest and greatest weird views of the world from a multitude of perspectives. Now, hopefully, you and I would go, man, let me live in Colossae. Let me at those folks as they come traveling through. They can come through, we'll invite them over, and we'll talk to them about the Lord. We'll let them blab for a little bit, and then we'll start to turn them to the real gospel. But apparently, this being a young church, <clears throat> they weren't mature enough to do that. And so Paul had to write this letter to them and really try to encourage them and try to move them to stand fast in the gospel. Let no one delude you with plausible arguments. False teaching and false spiritualities come with fine speech, smooth speech, fair speech, and persuasive speech. Always remember that. <clears throat> false prophets, unlike me, always have their hair combed. They always wear the right clothes. They always have the right smile because their dynamic is not the truth. It's something else, and that's what they capitalize on. So the biggest danger to Christianity we see from Colossians is not uh, the raw denials of atheism, but syncretism. That is taking foreign ideas, ideas foreign to the gospel, worldly ideas, worldly philosophies, and blending them with the gospel. That's always been the greatest hindrance to Christianity. It's always been the, the great headache, I guess, of Christian ministry. It's not when you encounter a person who doesn't believe in God. It's when you encounter a person who's insisting that their, their misinformed view of the Bible is based on the Bible, or their misinformed view of the Bible, you know, is just <clears throat> makes sense. You should think about it. And you're, you're dealing with someone who just won't budge because they're convinced that they have evidence and they have clarity when they don't. Big example today of what was going on at Colossae would be what? Can anybody think of one in your minds? One should like pop up. It's the biggest issue we're dealing with these days. The blending of worldly social justice with the gospel. It is exactly what was going on at Colossae. Just a different content being mixed with the gospel. So beware of <clears throat> social justice. It comes with plausible arguments. It sounds nice when they tell it at a high level and describe it, you know, on the big ticket items. Well, you know, we're going to have equity for all. And that sounds great, but what's behind it is neo-Marxism, not the gospel. God has equality for all. Marxism, in the end, does not. It just deludes you with persuasive speech. Colossians 2.8, there are all kinds of philosophies, empty deceptions, traditions of men, elementary principles of the world, all these variations coming at the Colossians. And so remember... What's going to come at us as Christians every day isn't going to be one big thing. It's usually going to be ten little things. And those little things will erode, and those little things will undermine, and those little things will draw you off. And so we have to hold fast the true gospel. These were some of the things that were <clears throat> sort of uh, nipping at the heels of the Colossians. 
worldly philosophies, Greek philosophy at that time, Eastern mysticism, Judaism that masquerades as the, you know, hey, let's, you've come to Jesus, that's great, but Judaism is where it's really at. In our day, we have all kinds of people all ooing and aahing over things like, what's the terminology? Completed Jew, have you heard that? That is just so unbiblical. And yet you have a whole group of people ooing and aahing that someone is of Jewish nationality and thinking that they have some special place in the kingdom of God. And they have, the only place they have is whatever sinners have. They have sin that needs to be uh, dealt with and they have a promise that if you'll come to Jesus, you'll be saved and become part of that great body of believers from all generations. So they had a lot of things coming at them in our day, we can add to this pile of things. Probably statism I have on the one side, and if you're not familiar with that term, that just means the state is God. So what's going on in America today? We're going to go from a country that's free, where your rights are guaranteed by a God who is above everybody, to a country where it's the state that grants you your rights and privileges. And if you don't have a right relationship with the state, then, well, you're just a, a blight on society and they have all their terms for it. <clears throat> you're this, you're that, the other. But we are basically back in the Roman Empire where the state was God back then and the state is being promoted as God today. The one thing we have, there might be some rival in the first century, but the one thing that's really a challenge for Christians is a sophisticated modern science and technology that masquerades as being authoritative in spiritual things. You know, someone will ask some famous scientist, Stephen Hawking, do you believe in God? It's like, well, no, he doesn't believe in God, but what does that matter? Why does his science qualify him to tell you about God? It doesn't. But there's this pseudo sense of authority that Stephen Hawking is so brilliant, surely he has answers for us about God. And surely he did not. And Stephen Hawking now knows that the true God that he completely disowned and mocked all his life he is now going to come before that God. So scientism is something we deal with. Now at Colossae, and I, and I put this picture up again, and I'm sort of going through this, uh, I guess you would say, review again. It's a little, might be considered lengthy, but I'm doing it for a reason. We haven't been in the book for a while, number one. A lot has happened. It seems like it's only been two, two or three Sundays, but it seems like you know, three or four Sundays. Um, we just have to remember that some of the things that we're presenting here are actually still happening today. At Colossae, there was this philosophy that there's up here in the wherever you want to call it, this, this good God, this good deity, and down here is this world in which we live, and well, the world in which we live is evil. The world in which we live is a negative state of existence. It's the world of non-being. It's an evil world, and all Basically, Eastern religions actually operate on this principle in one way or another. And so in between this good God and this evil physical world, there are mediators or intermediaries that will enable the good God to somehow relate to the bad world but not be tainted by it. That was their philosophical position. And so Paul, when he's addressing this error, he's using terminology that would sort of apply to this concept. That's why it's important to understand the concept because you don't understand why Paul goes for the cosmic Christ. Just sort of, you would think, out of nowhere. Boy, this is a different letter than Philippians or Romans. And the reason he's going for the cosmic Christ because he's dealing with cosmic philosophies. 
And, he's, and God is outfitting Christians of all ages through this letter, this answer of Paul to this issue, to be able to address the cosmic philosophies that float around in the world today. And in these cosmic philosophies, they're going to tip their hat to Jesus. What does Islam say about Jesus? That he's a bad man that you shouldn't believe in? Doesn't Islam say that he is a prophet and you should respect and honor all the prophets? And so they put Jesus in the realm of being a religious mediator that you can benefit from. But where is he placed on the scale of mediators? There's Abraham, he's considered a prophet. There's some others considered prophets. There's Jesus, but then 600 years later, well, you get Muhammad. So I guess Muhammad, you know, first in, first out, he gets on the top of the stack. And so Jesus in Islam is relegated to just another religious figure, religious guru that you can come to and relate to God. But don't you ever dare call him God. That is the greatest heresy to them. Mormons do the same. Jehovah's Witnesses do the same. Buddhism does the same. They all do it in their own ways. But this is what they do. Tip your hat to Jesus. Yep, we believe in Jesus. He's a good guy. Liberal Christianity does Jesus was a good man. You should, you should imitate Jesus. But don't tell me about this bloody atonement that I have to have in order to be reconciled to God. And then, gosh, lo and behold, I was on my bike listening to some music yesterday and this new song, at least new to me, because now I'm streaming. I'm cool, by the way. I stream. Um, probably 10 years too late, but I'm streaming. And <clears throat> so this song comes up by Charity Gale. Really a good song. So I got all excited and I got on Slack and I sent a little message to uh, Slade and Dave and said, hey, I just discovered, you know, Charity Gale. And they're like, yeah, she's good, but uh, Charity Gale is kind of hanging out with Bethel Music. And I'm like, oh, well, I should probably look this up because I've heard for years that Bethel was problematic, but I never, I don't really care much about heresy unless I have to deal with it. But yesterday I had to deal with it because I was listening to a song. So I went out and checked out Bethel and Bethel Music, and well, sure enough, Bethel is Pentecostal. I was saved in Pentecostalism and was in it and around it for 10 years. So I know how weird Pentecostal can get. I was in a group that talked about the manifest sons of God. We're the manifest sons of God. The rest of you out there, well, you're just sons of God. You're, you're technos, you're little children. We're weos, we're mature sons of God. I mean, we, we were out there. Now, I, didn't, I wasn't really believing it. It was just like, hey, these people I'm talking about must be true. When I finally got enough sense and maturity in my thinking, I'm like, this is really wacky. But at the time, I was being led. So I know how crazy it can get. I've been in, in rooms where they would have roll on the floor laughing. I got caught up one. I mean, there's just this laughing, and the next thing I know, I'm on the floor laughing. So there's reality to this stuff. It's not from God. And Christians can get caught up in it. Well, sure enough, what does Bethel do? They're doing all this stuff. 9,000-member church, been there since I was born, 1952. How's that, man, for some credentials? But as I'm reading, there's uh, one of the, I guess, elders. Well, I can't figure out who's who. They have so many names floating around. But one of the elders' wives is prominent, apparently. In her ministry, she talks about angels. And she talks about their names and, and all this talking about angels, you see. 
And I'm sitting there going, Ooh, sounds like Colossae to me. Sounds like chapter 2. Glorying in angels. And that's what Gnosticism is. If you actually read about old-timey Gnosticism, they have these myriads of angelic beings that they talk about with just chapters and chapters full of their names, their hierarchies, and their structures. And there was Bethel Music, one of the prominent women, engaging in nothing but second-century Gnosticism. So this stuff's alive and well, folks. Colossae is a living book to us. And it tells us when you encounter these things, I mean, the very statement of Paul is described, <clears throat> worshiping angels, dwelling in things which they have seen, vainly puffed up by his, in this case, her fleshly mind, and not holding fast the head, Jesus Christ. Now, when I was in Pentecostalism and in this weirdness, there were, there were people there who were real Christians. They were confused, and the Lord eventually would get them out of it. But this stuff in Colossians, if you've been in the Pentecostal movement and you're having to address it, this is where you go. You only get a couple lines in terms of it, you know, describing what the error is because you really don't want to dwell on the error. You'll dwell all day. You'll start talking to whatever her name is and she'll, be, she'll drag you into you know, day after day of talking about the angels and you'll be going, oh, is that what you're saying? Like, it doesn't do you any good to care about what she says so much as long as you realize, okay, here's basically what she's presenting then we can basically go to Colossians and we can address it with a few one-liners. And if she doesn't want to hear it and other people don't want to hear it, what can you do? But it's there. So Paul says to us where we started four or five weeks ago, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. This is not so much about your personal reception, your personal experience of believing on Jesus and receiving Him into your heart as the language will go. And, and we shouldn't despise that language. That's language that actually you can use from the New Testament. But it, it's not the, the language here in Colossae, and it's not the dominant language in the book of Acts. So if you want to you know, be biblical, use the dominant language that's in Scripture. And therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Him in the truth of who He is, as you receive the true Christ versus the false Christs that are coming through the little trade routes in your town, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Get rooted, get built up, be established, and then you will have thanksgiving. Don't worry about what's false. Focus on what's true. Stay there. Know enough about what's false in order to answer it Stick with what's true. Hold fast the head. Hold fast Jesus. We then went from there to start uh, Christmas 6, so we continued. So we went to chapter 1, and we thought, well, let's, let's look at what Paul says about holding fast this head, the Lord Jesus. What is he going to say about him? So he presents to us the cosmic Christ, a strange term. It's actually been around in, with the popular theologians for a number of years. But the Christ of the cosmos not just the Christ of the church building, but the Christ of the entire universe. And that is who Paul presents to us, that Jesus Christ is not a religious figure. He is the creator of heaven and earth and the sustainer of heaven and earth. He is the image of the invisible God. That means God radiates out from him. He's not just reflecting God. He's radiating God because he is the true and living God. He's the firstborn of all creation, not meaning firstborn in sequence, but meaning having privacy 
primacy rather, and uniqueness. He is the unique and solitary one who has the place and privilege and honor of the firstborn over the creation that he makes. And we know that that's so. We know that the Jehovah's Witnesses are invalid when they come here and say, see, he's the firstborn, the first one born, because that's not how Paul explains it. He says, for by him were all things created. That certainly excludes himself. By him, all things were created. All things, all creation, before all things, all things hold together. All things were created by him. And if you missed it, he itemizes it. Heavens, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created by him and through him and for him. And because of that, he's the prototokos, the firstborn. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. This is the Christ we present to the world. And so for you younger folks, I thought, well, you know, I, I give you these complex slides about the false teaching. Here's hopefully a simple slide that might be helpful to you one day. Today, hopefully. What Paul presents is that there's one true living personal God, not some unknown being up in the sky that you can never know, like the Gnostics did. And this one true living personal God created all things. He gives to all life and breath and meaning and purpose, to borrow the language of Acts 17. That is the biblical worldview, the biblical philosophy. And this one God is transcendent. He is infinite. He is eternal. And he is invisible. And I don't know about you, but when I think, okay, God's invisible. Yeah, you can't see him. I haven't thought, you know, much about that in my lifetime. And, you know, I've thought about it here and I can talk about it. <clears throat> but it wasn't until I was doing this series that I kept hitting. He's the invisible God. Paul says that a number of times. He wants us to know he's the invisible God versus the visible false idols. God is invisible. He can't be seen in that sense. He can't be comprehended in a test tube. That's why science has no authority to state anything about God, because God cannot be measured by empirical metrics of test tubes. He's transcendent. The rest of us, the rest of God's creation is dependent upon God, not independent, but dependent, finite, temporal, being framed by time. You have a starting point. God doesn't have one and is material, visible. And that's the difference. And this creator God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this transcendent God who is infinite, eternal, and invisible. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. You see that right here in this chapter. Jesus is the Son of the Father's love. Creation is distinctly Trinitarian. You don't have to mention all three, because all three are mentioned somewhere to know that all three, Father, Son, and Spirit, are in view. And the true picture is not the Gnostic one of Jesus being one mediator, of many mediators. Father, Son, and Spirit, the eternal Son became a man, Jesus Christ. But it is this Jesus Christ, who is called Jesus Christ, by the way. It is Jesus, the man Jesus, who is embodying the eternal Son, who created all things. All creation. And so if you were to take the terminology of that paragraph, and you were to sprinkle it around on this slide, this is what you get. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son of God's love, the one that God has ordained. 
to be the judge of the living and the dead, language from other places. He is the firstborn, and he has primacy and authority over thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, things visible and invisible, things in the heavens and the earth, and that is all creation. That is how that language fits on that slide. So I can, if you ever want to say, okay, I'm not getting something, you can go to Steve's slide making, just apologize to Matt for being clummy, clunky, and make a slide and drop the words of Scripture on it. That's all I did here. That's all you have to do. doesn't have to be pretty. doesn't have to be beautiful. If you take the words of Scripture and drop them where they should be as they are described in Scripture, you will come up with this. The Word of God in the end is really pretty simple. It's the heresies that are complex. The hardest part about teaching the second coming is not teaching the second coming. I can teach the entire second coming in two hours, hands down, done. I've done it before, people know it. It's like one of the easiest doctrines in the Bible to teach. You know what's hard about the second coming? Is when you got to stop and undo everybody's confused teaching that they've had before. That's the hard part. All you have to do is take the words of the second coming and drop them on a slide, and it just maps right out really easy. It's not difficult. It's unraveling everything that everybody has heard because what they've heard is usually far more entertaining than the actual doctrine from the red letters of Jesus. So if you're going to do things, drop biblical terms on a piece of paper, and it usually helps you sort your mind out on something. So... Here's what the Colossians said, Jesus is but one mediary. Here's what Paul said, Jesus is the cosmic Christ, the author of all creation. Last time we looked at this, we looked at Christ as the head of the body, the church. Paul spent three verses on Christ as the cosmic Christ. He now spends three verses on Christ as the head of the church, the redeemer of the new creation. The first verses we looked at are of the current creation, but there's a new creation, and Jesus is presented as that. We looked at the terminology that he is the head of the body. Didn't spend a lot of time on each one, but just to get a feel in a sense, what does it mean that Jesus is the head of the church? Well, first of all, it's a term of authority. Christ is also the head of the church, Ephesians 5, 23 and 24. He's the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also is the wife to be their husbands and everything. Here is how this word head is used. Out there in the ether, there's all this dialogue by the feminist that headship doesn't mean headship. God would never introduce a hierarchy into relationships. That's abominable to us. So therefore, head must mean something else. And they come up with all these creative ways to dance around what the word head means. And after all their dancing and the dust settles, it still says what it says. The church is subject to Christ. For Christ to be the head of the church, we have an unambiguous statement that there is hierarchy, submission, and authority. And that is the word of God. And so if someone wants to be a feminist and a Christian, good luck. You can't be both. Not today's feminism. If you're going to submit to Christ, submit to Christ. If you're going to want to pursue feminism, fine, do it. But don't think you'll be approved of God. Jesus is the head of the church. We are to submit to him because he is our king and our Lord. And that is what it means. First Corinthians, there's the, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. 
For this cause ought the woman to have a sign of authority on her head because of the angels. Again, headship is used in terms of hierarchy. It is used in terms of submission, and it is clearly used in terms of authority. That is what the word means. So Christ is the head of the body. He's the head of the body because he's said to be the beginning. He's the RK. He's first in regard to time and authority. He's the head of the church because he's the firstborn. He's the prototokos. He has all the rights and privileges of firstborn. It's hard for us to relate because we don't live in a culture where the firstborn child is like the biggest deal. He's the firstborn because he has first place in everything. That's what firstborn means. He has priority of honor and inheritance. He's the firstborn because in him all the fullness dwells. He's the head of the body because in him all the fullness dwells. He's the source of all blessing. Ephesians 1 and many other places. He's also the firstborn because of what he accomplished. He's the firstborn from the dead. The first to rise is the first fruits of Christians who sleep, sleep in the grave. And he's the one through whom God has reconciled all things through the blood of his cross. He's the head of the body. And so if you could do a slide about that, there's Father, Son, and Spirit. There's Jesus Christ. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn. He has first place. He has fullness, resurrection, reconciliation in heavens and on earth. Slides are helpful. Take the words of God and drop them on a slide. And it tells you a lot. This is Jesus Christ, and this is what it means for him to be the head of the church. So that was a long review. It's been a while since we've looked at this. And I just wanted to make sure we were clear on these things because Colossians is just such a relevant book in the culture in which we live today. So let's pray and ask God to be with us in the few minutes that are remaining. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne. Lord, we just thank you for the truth of your holy word. We often refer to these words of the words of Paul. Paul said this or wrote that. Or, Lord God in heaven, they are the words of the Holy Spirit. Paul said a lot of things in his lifetime, but these that he wrote down and you preserved, these are the ones that the Holy Spirit ordained to be put down word for word and letter for letter. Lord God, you have said that behind these words of yours are your entire being, your character, your purposes, your power your glory. You are light and love and when you say that your words are true and tell us we can, we can trust our lives to your words, you are there in the entirety of your being to stand behind your word forever. So Lord, as we think about these words, just give us that holy fear that every human being should have. You are the great and mighty God who created all things. I mean, Lord, all we have to do is look at a Hubble telescope picture and we just are in awe of a billion stars in front of our face. And that's just one little galaxy. Lord, you're the awesome God. You're the great God. You're the majestic God. Lord, let your word operate in our minds and hearts to reprove us where we need to be reproved, to correct us where we need correction, to encourage us where we need that to establish us in faith, in love, and in hope. These are the things that matter. These are the things that make up life. Life is fleeting. 
Every one of us can look back today and 30 years has gone by in a blink. 40 years has gone by in a blink. 70 years has gone by in a blink. Lord, we are bound by time. We are temporal. Lord Jesus, you came to give eternal life. And just pray that these words of eternal life would be meat and drink to our souls. And that, Lord, we would see in these words what you intend in these words. And you're the only one who can do that. You're the only one, Lord Jesus, that can take the things that you belong to you and by the Holy Spirit, put them in our hearts. And we ask you to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So Christ is the head of the church. In this case, the phraseology of Paul is he's the head of the body of the church. Interesting phrase, because the scope of his headship is an entity simultaneously called the body and the church. So when you read something like this, you can do mathematics. I always have to tell people I design databases and all the developers think that it's a mystery how I do it. I'm like, nah, it's math. It's like really easy. The hard part is fixing some other things. Paul represents these designations as equivalent. The body, the church. And you put an equal sign between them. The body equals what? Okay. And the reason I say this is because there's a lot of confused teaching in the last 2,000 years of the church that somehow thinks there's not an equal sign there. They'll go running off and give some definition of the church that sounds really good to them and, you know, do what uh, confused people do, grab a few scriptures that they think, you know, uh, upholds their cause and throw them around and with all confidence and say, yes, yeah, see, that's what the church is. But they leave out that Paul says, no, the church is the body of Christ. There's an equal sign there. If I go one plus one equals what I got to put over here? Two. What if I put three? What if I put one? I got to put two. I can't put anything there but two, at least in base 10, or I am misrepresenting reality. And when Paul says the body, the church, he puts an equal sign. And if you try to say the church is this, this, and this without your starting point, oh, wait a minute, it's the body of Christ. Then you're going to have some confused teaching about these things, some confused ideas about these things. The same goes for the body. It's like, ah, oh, man, body. I've just discovered body life. I love the body, the body, the body, body life. Do this, do that. Go do hospitality and all these other things that people get into. And it's really a good thing. They're thinking about it. That's great. But they forget that the body is the church. And so in order to understand that Jesus is the head of the body, the church, well, we kind of have to know what Paul means by the body and the church, because this is the first time we're introduced to these in his letter. But the first thing to do is to know that they are equivalents. If you were to look at Ephesians, you get the same thing. And uh, the end of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, and he put all things in subjection under his feet, Jesus. Or, <clears throat> yeah, God. Put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. Sounding like familiar language in Colossians? Headship, authority, all things. All right? He's given him head over all things to the church, which is his body. Wait a minute, Paul. 
You said the body, which is the church in Colossians. Now you're saying church is the body. If I put one plus one over here and put two here, is that the same thing as switching them? So you don't have to put them in order because they're equivalent. You can say one plus one equals two, or you could say, rather sort of <clears throat> strangely, two equals one plus one. It means the same thing. And I only emphasize that because there are folks who want to go off on tangents. You have landmarkism, and there's a version of it today out there. There's a very popular movement that, in my mind, its trajectory is landmarkism. That basically says the local church is the only version of the church. Now, they won't say it outright, but that's what they imply in all of their pursuits. The local church. By the way, local church is not a biblical term. That's a theological construct. It's not a, it's not a biblical term. You won't find that in the Bible. You will find churches that are in places, in localities. And so we think, oh, well, then we can just call those local churches. I mean, look, they're in a locality. They're a church. They're a local church. Well, that's great if that's what you want to do and be descriptive. But when you turn local church into a doctrine on its own that has its own life and its own definition and grows and grows and grows, and it's now called the local church, and that version of the local church starts to be imposed on the Bible, that's another thing. And that's how systematic theology gets out of control. So <clears throat> be careful what terminology you use again. It's important. If someone says, you know, let's go to church. Why don't you plug in the other term you could use, the equivalent term. Let's go to body. Oh, wait a minute. That sounds awkward, doesn't it? Now, I'm not going to pick on someone for saying, let's go to church. I probably say it too. But in your thinking, you say, when I'm thinking about the church, what it really is, are those terms interchangeable in my sentences? Because they are interchangeable for the Apostle Paul. Now, this terminology has some specific intent. Why does Paul use two terms? Why not just one? And one is often used. But when he's being descriptive, when he's wanting to be clear, when he's wanting to be precise, he uses both terms together. And there's a reason for it. Because while these two terms both define what we call the body or the church, each of them has a different trajectory that it brings to the definition. The first term, or really the second word in our verse here, church, is the Greek word ekklesia. Many of you have heard that. And oftentimes, ekklesia is explained, well, it means the called out ones, and that would be true. But then folks go to the Greek city-state paradigm and start to explain ekklesia from the Greek city-state. And, you know, that has some validity to it, by the way. We'll explain that in a little bit. But is the Greek city-state the place you should go to understand this word, ecclesia, church? Where do you go? If you want to know something, what something means in the New Testament, where do you go? You're sure about that? You're sure that the Old Testament is the place to go? Why? Because if you try to go to worldly philosophy, 
to define a word in the New Testament or try to go to tradition of the church in the last 2,000 years, you can easily be led astray. You can't be led astray by its origins in the Old Testament because that is God explaining what he means. The whole reason he gave the Old Testament is so that when the New Testament comes along, we have a background, we have clarity, we have types, we have shadows, we have promises, we have prophecies, we have examples, we have elaborations of what God means when he ultimately brings his son into the world to bring into existence, into eschatological existence, the church, the body of Christ. So this is like Matthew. What does Matthew do? He starts out going where? Where does Matthew take you in the first few chapters? He takes you where? What's the first thing out of the chute? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the genealogies. Where is he taking you? The Old Testament. Where does Matthew leave you when he ends? When you close that book of Matthew, where does he leave you? In the Old Testament or in the, in the new creation? And so Matthew is that bridge, and this, these two terms here give us a bridge from the Old Testament and the concepts as the, of the people of God as being the ecclesia of God, the sunagoge of God, to where now the people of God are the body of Christ. Something has happened, hasn't there? And these two words bring those realities together. Something old and something wonderfully new. So one term reaches back into the Old Testament types and shadows and prophecies, ecclesia, or church, or a similar word, synagogue, from which we get synagogue. The other term, soma, or body, is a picture of the ultimate realities to which that Old Testament was always moving toward. And so if we want to know that Jesus is the head of the body of the church, then we have to track down these terms in the scriptures. Now it seems the best to start with the word ecclesia because ecclesia reaches back. Let's go, go back and get the foundation before we build the house. Anybody here want to build a house and then later jack it up and put a foundation in it? I'm sure I probably did that with some of my tree forts, but those were days past. So we want to go back and look at the foundations of this word church. Remember, Jesus is the head. This is like, you know, Jesus' job description here. If we want to say, who is Jesus? Well, he's the Savior. He's saving people as the head of the church. He, he's, he's the one who already created the present universe. He's continually to hold it together. It consists by him. But his new and greatest work is that he has accomplished redemption, is at the right hand of God as the head of his church. Isn't that what we saw in the book of Revelation last Sunday? What's the first thing you get in the book of Revelation? You just don't hop into Jesus talking to those seven churches. And each church saying, here are things that are good, here are things that are bad. Hey, fix what's bad and hang on to what's good because here's the reward you have waiting for you. He does that with every church. That's his headship over the church, exercising it. That's why when we pray, that's why when, if there's prophecy in our midst, there's, that's what prophecy is supposed to be doing. To each little church, God has a word. 
Now, we don't have any prophets on our men, so we had not have prophecy, but it wouldn't blow me out. I've been in Pentecostalism. I know what's crazy about Pentecostalism, and I know what's good about Pentecostalism. People who have never been in Pentecostalism and try to criticize Pentecostalism, most of the time I, I, I listen to them, and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of wacky, but you really don't know why it's wacky. You really don't know what's going on in the minds of those people that are there. I was there. I was one of them. I know how they think. I thought like them for a while. So it's not the gifts of the Spirit that are the problem. It's the worshiping of angels. It's the gold dust, the feathers. That's the problem. And so God is supposed to speak to every church. Speak to our church. We actually had a brother in our midst that actually had dreams. Remember? Some of you remember? Tony? Some of you remember him? He didn't even know what he had. He'd come up and say, man, I had this dream. And oh my gosh, that dream was exactly right on. How'd you have that? It was really some outlandish dream. And he said, I just think I'm supposed to tell you. And if he said, oh, Tony, you're a Pentecostal. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm a Baptist. It was great. He had some really great dreams. They were really helpful at times. So the Lord speaks to his church. His headship of the church. But where does this all begin? What is this church that he's the head of? How does God view it? Where are the origins of the concept of ecclesia? Now the word itself, ecclesia, means one who is called out. It's a simple term, kaleo, which means call. Ekaleo is to call out. Greek, if you get some basic words in it, they just take words and start throwing them together, and you go, oh, yeah, that means that, because they just put two words together. So Greek is sometimes pretty easy, sometimes not. But it just means those who are called out, and the Greek city-state, they would say, okay, we are a democracy, so we're going to have an assembly of the citizens. Most people weren't citizens, but those that were got to go and contribute in this assembly. They got to contribute to some concern or affair of the city-state of which they were a citizen. And so that group that gathered together was called the ecclesia, the called out ones. I think people say it's because someone would go around and calling them and say, hey, come to the assembly. They were called out. Don't know if that's true or not, but it sounds good. But in the Old Testament, <clears throat> this word is used a lot, by the way. It has a similar significance, at least at the starting point. So real quickly, to understand that, first of all, the word church actually means those that are assembled. Deuteronomy 4.10, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days of their, they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Gosh, what a passage, huh? When you assemble together, it's for what? You hear the words of God. That's what the assembly is for. And when you hear those words of God, what is it supposed to produce in your life? Take it or leave it? Vote on it? No. You may fear and tremble before the Lord. That's the point. And so this word assemble, I've marked it there in the, in the yellow. That's the word ecclesia. It's the verb form, ecclesia, the people. But up there, remember the day you stood before the Lord? Well, that's also the word ecclesia, the noun form. Remember the day that you were an ecclesia, an assembly before me, because I said, assemble the people. So that's what the word means. People assembled together. And in God's world, it's assembled together unto who? Themselves 
or under God. And that's important to note. A Greek city-state assembly is one thing, an assembly that stands before the Lord as God's people, that's quite another. You see this word used again, why is the Lord bringing unto us into the land to fall by the sword, Numbers 14, 3 through 5. That is, the spies, ten of them brought back a bad report, or at least a report, they told the truth, but they embellished it with fear instead of faith. Our wives and our little ones, will we come plunder, would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Fear versus faith. So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. So they were serious about this. They were really bent. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation. There's the word. So throughout the Old Testament, this word is used along with sunagoge, and they're used somewhat interchangeably. In the Hebrew, behind them are two words, kahal and edah. And again, they kind of mean the same thing. You might be able to say, well, one leans toward another one, but there's, there's some intermixture in it. But conceptually, they're both the same. Conceptually, they're a gathered group of people, but in the case of the Old Testament, always as the Lord's people and always being seen as before the Lord. Not before Moses, but before the Lord. And that's important. So when you start thinking about church and you start thinking about this term and you start thinking about its origins, the first thing you should say to yourself, I'm going to go to church. Is it a building or is it a place where the people of God are spiritually or physically assembled to be spiritually before the Lord? That's what a church is. Always remember that. It is not a building. It is not an organization. It is not a hierarchical structure unless you want to talk about Jesus as the head. There are no hierarchies beyond that in the kingdom of God. There's God, there's Jesus as the head of this church, and then there's the rest of us. There's no distinction between us. I may function as an elder. I may function in preaching. But I am a brother in Christ before I am ever that. I am a person assembled before the Lord in the fear of God to hear his word, to interact with God based on his word before I am ever any kind of leader. Growing up, you have to learn that the hard way. Because growing up as a young man, you want to be a leader because you want to change the world. Then you start figuring out, hmm, to be a leader, you have to be qualified. And then you start figuring out, and you're not changing the world. (laughs) If you can change the little little space in the world, then you've done well. And once a person gets to that point, then they're ready for leadership. Until then, they're not. Leadership is a matter of maturity. And if your identity is that you're a leader, you're in big trouble. Because someone dings your leadership, which they are going to do all the time. Your identity is going to be muffed, miffed. And you're going to start reacting like Moses wrongly did and did not make it into the land of Canaan. You see, good leadership says, I'm here to represent God, not myself. I am but one more person standing before the Lord. And I'm here to hear his word. I'm a person under authority. All of us are. That is the church. So if you are gathering for any other reason, then together 
be before God in some spiritual way, together recognize the authority of the word of God in some way, and to honor God, then you've missed the point of ecclesia. So those are used in specific ways, and again, they're used throughout the Old Testament many places. There's a great place, and I just love this place, Psalm 22, that great psalm where the first 21 verses are about the suffering of the Messiah. Literally a description of Jesus on the cross. And then just right in the middle, when you think it can't get any worse, there's this absolute switch from suffering to glory. No, I know because Psalm 22, 22, that's where it makes the switch. And here is the Messiah, Jesus, having been raised from the dead, having been exalted to the right hand of God, says through this psalm in true biblical prophecy that is actually inscripturated, therefore has absolute authority. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Jesus rises from the dead. And what's the first thing he says? Go and tell my brethren, I go unto my God, and your God, my Father, and your Father. You know how long the Eternal Son waited to utter those words in time, space, history? The first thing he wants to tell us is that we now share with the eternal Lord of glory the same God and the same Father. I will tell of your name to my brethren. Go and tell my brethren. In the midst of the assembly will I praise you. Go and tell them about my God and your God and my Father and your Father. And it is delight now of Jesus Christ to show us the Father, and it is delight of the Father to show us his Son. Do you delight in that yourself? Jesus said, I'm going to tell them in the midst of the assembly. Well, what assembly? There's only a few people there when Jesus rose from the dead. And there might have been a few more on the day of Pentecost, and then several thousand were brought in, but... Thousands were saved all over the Roman Empire in that first century. Thousands have been saved since. What is this great assembly? Is it a physical assembly at a certain place in time in history? Or is this assembly describing all the saints from all ages who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, starting with Eve and ending with that last person who enters the kingdom of God through faith in Christ before he returns? The great assembly. We are but an expression of the great assembly. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. Verse 25. Someone says, well, Steve, aren't you stretching the word some? I mean, you're getting a lot of mileage out of that Old Testament word. It really just means physically gathering together. The local church is the only version of the church. 
Well, the writer of the Hebrews would beg to differ with that opinion and sides with mine. Actually, I'm siding with his. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that we as Christians have not come unto Mount Sinai where there's the law and, the, and the, the voice of God that puts you in such fear and trembling you don't want to hear it anymore. Where are these Ten Commandments that in the end are not for us, they are against us, they are not a ladder to heaven, they are a mirror to show us we're not going there on our own. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 22 says, But you, Christians, you believers, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what you've come to. Do you think about your privileges when your bank account's low? Do you think about them when your bank account's high? You've come to Mount Zion. Every last one of us here who believes in Jesus has been born of God. We have come to Mount Zion. We are not on Mount Sinai. Do not live there. Do not act like you live there. You are on Mount Zion. You are part of the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That heavenly Jerusalem that will one day figuratively come down out of heaven. And to a myriad of angels... To the general assembly, the assembly, and the church of the who? The firstborn. Interesting that that is how Hebrews describes the church. We are the general assembly. We're not some specific assembly in some point in space and time. We're not, oh, the local church is the only version of the church. That's baloney. The writer of Hebrews says here there's this general assembly and it's the church, the ecclesia of Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation. And you don't get into this church by signing some church covenant on earth. You only get in this church by being enrolled in heaven. The book of life. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, all the saints from all generation, come <coughs> to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkling of blood, which speaks better things than the blood of Abel. That's what you've come to, my brothers and sisters. You've come to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn. So do you go to church on Sundays? Or do you come here? with this sense of who we all are before the living God. You are part of the great assembly of Psalm 22. You are on Mount Zion. Is that your picture? Jesus the mediator, Jesus the firstborn. This is the consistent picture of the New Testament. Well, our time is gone. We'll Hopefully next week, take a stroll through the Old Testament about this bigger and larger theme that this term assembly and soon ago points to. This theme of the people of God. And this theme that I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what you go to on Sunday morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... 
if we had even one real inkling of who we are, we would be so full, we would just fall over and die, which is probably why you don't show it to us. We would die for joy. We would die for the sense of the glory of who we are in Jesus. What an awesome, amazing privilege. Lord, forgive us for ever grumbling against you, forever doubting your goodness, forever complaining about the situations you engineer for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you could utter those words, your God and our God and your Father and our Father, that we share in your inheritance. We share in your love. We share in your relationships. And Lord, may we all understand that we are part of the great assembly and that we will regard one another as a fellow member of the great assembly. Lord, we will not grumble about each other. We will not complain. Lord, we will see another's faults and, and pray that, Lord, that that will be worked out. And if we're part of the working out, then we'll be part of it with true humility and genuine love. We will not pick on one another. But Lord, we will see who we all are. The great assembly is no place for gossip. No place for undermining someone else's character. It is a place of building up. It is a place of encouragement. It is a place of anticipation of all the brothers and sisters from all human history whom you have redeemed that we will one day meet and in eternity spend a long time with each and every one. Lord, we think of the personalities we meet where some are quiet, some are just full of themselves, and those all personalities will be there. We'll enjoy them all. We'll be blessed by all. And Lord, just teach us and remind us that we are before you, that in the great assembly we hear your words and we fear you. We respond accordingly. Lord Jesus, thank you that you purchased us for this very purpose. You bled and died to make us part of the great assembly. In Jesus' name, amen.